The Splendid Table is supported by Applegate. If you consciously choose clean, craveable meat for ethical, environmentally responsible, and delicious reasons, you might be an Applegatarian. If you like your meat with no added hormones, no antibiotics, and no GMO ingredients, you might be an Applegatarian. Applegate is just clean, natural, organic meat. Go Applegatarian today. For more information, visit Applegate.com. And by Betty Crocker. There's never been a better time to bake a treat that makes everyone happy, and Betty Crocker is there to help. Just go to your pantry and pull out one of her brownie, cake, or cookie mixes. Follow Betty Crocker on Instagram, Pinterest, and Facebook, and go to BettyCrocker.com for thousands of recipe ideas. And when your treats are out of the oven, share what you made with the hashtag CallMeBettyCrocker. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM American Public Media. The other week, I heard about a guy whose grandfather was around in 1776 when America declared independence, and whose grandson is still alive today. And okay, the math sounds kind of wild to me, but really the wild thing is that even though some things seem like totally ancient history, there are always people who have lived through the magical time bridges that connect us to the past, who've lived to see unimaginable change through their lives. And in the food world, there might not be anyone who's seen more unimaginable change than Jacques Pepin. When I was growing up, he was a guy on TV who had a smooth accent and could cut up a chicken like a chicken cutting machine sent back from the future. But he learned his chicken skills while apprenticing under a man who was the sous chef of Auguste Escoffier, the man who basically invented French haute cuisine as we know it. So think about that. Jacques Pepin is a chef who's both an heir to the high priest of classical French cooking and the man who helped pave the way for today's chefs to be Instagram stars. And so we were honored to be invited into Jacques' home to talk about his life and career. And I gotta say, it was awesome stepping into his house and literally recognizing pans hanging on the wall that I've seen him cook with on TV. But it turned out it wasn't really his house, at least not the one he sleeps in. Because Jacques said he got to be a little awkward when his family would come down for coffee in the morning and have to tiptoe around camera crews. So we were actually in a separate kitchen he built for shoots. And then he walked me into his backyard, I mean, just 20 feet away, and picked some of the wild mushrooms like he did when he was a boy growing up in the French countryside. And he fishes in the water nearby like he did when he was a kid. And then it occurred to me that this was exactly it. The way he lives is both his past and our future. Real country skills and a made-for-camera set all together at the same time. So, Chef, thank you so much for having us in your home today. This is an extraordinary honor. Thank you for coming. I'm so excited to be here. And since we're sitting in your kitchen, and I'm, I have to admit, I'm sort of like peeking around, being like, oh, what does Jacques Pepin cook with? Uh, beautiful stove. And it actually reminds me of a really remarkable moment when I read your memoir. Mm. And when you were first cooking in restaurants at 13, 14 years old as an apprentice. And you wrote a lot about the stove and how your role at the time was to mine the stove. And what Mm. that meant was (laughs) to actually fire the stoves. The stoves were not gas powered. You had to set fire to wood. And how you did that fundamentally affected how that night was going to go in the restaurant. You're not kidding. What is it like learning to cook on that kind of stove? The kind of stove where you can't control the heat, where you can't turn a knob. Well, it's, well, the point is that we didn't have a choice. You know, that's where you started. And uh, it's a totally lost art, you know. I mean, before it was a big part of the the trending, you know. Um, And we had a stove, what about in apprenticeship, well, probably 15 foot long by uh, 8 foot wide, a big rectangle with six holes, you know. Uh, and uh, we started in the morning with a bit of uh, paper and some wood and then coal. 
and uh, you start only two or three because you don't want to use too much stuff and by the time it's 10.30 in the morning then you start filling up the other station so that uh, everyone has a place to cook and uh, the point is that people are sitting down let's say at 12, 12.30 well by 11.30 quarter to 12 you really push, push your stove so that at 12 I mean you open the oven and the oven with their six holes so it was Two, uh, one, two, three oven here, three oven on the other side, which when you open the door corresponds, it's just a funnel mm. in between. So the side of that oven had to be red, you know, when we started at 12.30. So it was like 500 degrees, there is no thermostat or anything at that time. And on one side I'm cooking a fish and the other guy on the other side is making a souffle. So you really have to work with the food. If you did not get that thing right, the stove all red at the time when the, the, the service would start, people sitting down, that screw up the whole dining room. Right. I mean, that pushed back the thing and the chef would be crazy. Yes. Uh, so the stove was a, a big, big deal, yes. And, you know, I had that stove when I worked at the Plaza in Paris. Uh, we had five stoves like this in the kitchen. It was still with coal at yeah. the Plaza in Paris, and that was in the 50s. Do you think you were a better cook then when you had to use that sort of technology to cook on? No, it's just a question. Now you have to do the same thing, but it's easier with all those adjustments. But eventually to get to the same place, to get to the place when my, my chef in apprenticeship go by the oven and say, uh, the chicken is cooked in the oven, hearing it. See that chicken, by the time it finished cooking, the fat clarified in the cooking liquid. So the chef would say, the chicken sing, it's cooked. Mm. Now. Uh, that type of things, which happen with a repeat, 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 it is small increment that testing, adjusting, testing, adjusting, testing, adjusting, eventually, and that can take years. In fact, it never stops. Going back to uh, to the stove at the beginning, when I was an apprentice, it took me one year to go to the stove. For a year, you clean, you clean, you scale fish, you pluck uh, chicken at the time, we kill chicken and uh, 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 scaling, the cutting, the thing, getting at the stove, getting stove, and learning a smutic way, you know. The chef never explained to you, he said, do that. You would never have said why. If you had said why, he would have said, because I just told you. That's what I would the end of it. <laughs> and you do, you do things, and you help at the stove, and one day the chef, tomorrow you start at the stove. Say, Me at the stove? I, I don't, you went to the stove and you knew how to do it. So again, that learning, you know, in our time of uh, instant gratification, you know, people go to school, they go two months and that's it, they are chefs, they want to do that, which wasn't the case at the time. So you have a year where you, before I went to the stove, you were supposed to do certain things, other things you didn't even touch. So you continue learning in a certain way to get to the same point that you will get probably faster now by having all of that help that you can do with the... Uh, but eventually, if you really want to do a good chef, eventually you transcend all of that type of help, equipment, you look at the oven, you know it's cooked, you can hear it too, you get to the same point. But yeah, it yeah. takes longer. Yeah. <laughs> it takes longer, but your, your insistence on the importance of repetition is really interesting because I think what right. you're saying too is, it's not just repetition, it's also being open to what you're learning every time you repeat, right? Yeah, open the, to seeing the new thing that. or hearing the thing that you didn't hear before. The point, maybe the hardest part of a chef is, uh, is to, do, to be consistent, to do consistent so that you go to that restaurant, each time you have that, it's exactly the same. Hey, let's go back to when you were young as an apprentice. Do you remember the first dish you cooked for guests in a restaurant? Well, I cook many dishes, but then I was allowed to go to the stove and the, the, the apprentice cook upstairs. And uh, by then, I was 13 when I went into apprenticeship, <laughs> so, uh, which is basically 70 years ago, you know, so 1949. So uh, then another apprentice came after me, then a third. So I was not the oldest in age, but the oldest, quote, apprentice after a year and a half. We slept upstairs. And one night, I remember Adele, which was the, the, the waitress, and well, when I came to knock at my door, the people came in at 10 o'clock at night, the chef had left already, and uh, they wanted to eat. And uh, so I was put in charge of uh, that dinner, and uh, we cooked 
Well, there it was in Bourg-en-Bresse and the chicken of Bresse, B-R-E-S-S-E, mm. are the most famous chicken in France. Yeah. So basically, most people who came are chicken in one way or the other. One of the famous ones was just sauté with cream and tarragon and so forth. And this is what I did that night. And uh, so I was really excited to doing this. And then <laughs> after the waiter, I said that the, 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 the customer wanted to see the chef. <laughs> so, <laughs> They took me to the dining room. I was 14 years old. They looked at me. <laughs> That's pretty weird. Yeah. <laughs> Who's this kid? This yeah. is the chef's kid. <laughs> but you know, from age six, seven, my mother had a restaurant, so I was cooking. There right. I had started learning as well, and during the war, and I'm very miserly in the kitchen, probably because of uh, during the war we didn't have that much to eat, and uh, part of the tradition as well, you never throw anything out, you know. Sure. So. We used so that that became very very important in the in, in my cooking. Yeah. That's Chef Jacques Pepin, and we'll be back with more from him about going from haute cuisine to Howard Johnson's. Another world uh, that I didn't know anything about that is to work in production, the chemistry of food, yeah. the mass market, American eating habit, uh, from the clam chowder to the clam strip to whatever we did there. It was another type of food. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM American Public Media. Our show is supported by Applegate. Hey, vegetarians, flexitarians, and fruitarians, there's a new terrian in town, an Applegate-terrian. Applegatarians consciously choose clean, craveable meat for ethical, environmentally responsible, and delicious reasons. That's because Applegate meat is made with no added hormones, no antibiotics, no GMO ingredients, and no shame. It's just clean, natural, organic meat. And hey, you might already be an Applegatarian. If you'd like to get your antibiotics from your pharmacy, not your farm, you might be an Applegatarian. If you said no when you watched the cute pig video and still turned around and ate bacon the next day, you might be an Applegatarian. If you bite into your hot dog and think, you know, this could really use some good old sustainable farming practices, you might be an Applegatarian. Welcome to The Good Life, also known as The Applegate Way. To learn more about going Applegatarian, visit Applegate.com. That's A-P-P-L-E-G-A-T-E dot com. And by Capital One. Capital One knows life doesn't alert you about your credit card. That's why they created Eno, the Capital One assistant that catches things that might look wrong with your credit card, like over-tipping, duplicate charges, or potential fraud. They send an alert to your phone and help you fix it. It's another way Capital One is watching out for your money, even when you're not. Capital One. What's in your wallet? See CapitalOne.com for details. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table, the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're spending this hour with the living legend Jacques Pepin. We began by talking with him about his start as a 13-year-old and learning to cook on coal-fired stoves that you just can't turn high or low. And in this next part, we talk about who he's had the pleasure of cooking for and what's kept him excited about cooking for 70 years. I want to jump ahead now a little bit. You were a cook at the Plaza Athene. Right. Which at the time, and still is, one of the great restaurants of the world. Right. Ducasse now, was it? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, And from there you were cooking very, very classical French haute cuisine. Right. Very escoffier. Even more so at the Meurice. I started at the Meurice, and the chef there, he was uh, the sous-chef of Escoffier sometimes. So, uh, oh, he was literally Escoffier yeah, sous-chef. Right, so uh, very, very classic. And then I went to work at the Plaza Athénée, where I stayed longest. I stayed almost seven years at the Plaza Athénée. But during that time, I learned a great deal. I work in probably a hundred restaurants in Paris because going to La Société des Cuisiniers de Paris, Society of the Chef of Paris, mm-hmm. that was a member, you go in the morning, I don't even know why we don't have that type of things here, you can call in the morning and say, I need a chef today, or that, that, uh, and you get for the day. So you go there to work one day, two days, three days, uh, and people call every day. So my day off, usually I work 
another restaurant. So I work probably, as I say, close to 100 restaurants in Paris. From uh, the Galerie Lafayette, you know, kind of big production to uh, uh, the Soup Populaire, which is the, the you know, uh, free food for, for poor people. So it was a great experience. Let's talk about cooking for the president of France. And actually, not just the president, but you also cook, you, you cooked for Charles de Gaulle at one point. Right, yes. Prior to that, you cooked for other... Yeah, know, two other head of state. It was under the Fourth Republic. The Fifth Republic came to light in January 1960, I believe, with de Gaulle. Prior to that, under the Fourth Republic, uh, the government were changing at a rapid pace. Mm-hmm. And the president was actually the prime minister. The president of France didn't really have any power, like the Queen of England, if you oh, want. So it was the prime minister, the president du conseil, president of the Council of Ministers, who had the power. And that's where I was there. And it happened that uh, I was drafted in the Navy in France. At that time, uh, it was mandatory service. Uh, it was a war in Algeria. And uh, I was, uh, did my uh, boot camp and so forth. And I was to be sent to Algeria too. And uh, at the last moment, they sent me to Paris because my brother was were 16 months difference. And he was also drafted, and he was in Algeria, already in the fighting area. So mm-hmm. they did not send two drafted at the same time. That's why they sent me back to Paris. Oh. And I had, I that was a policy in the French military? Right, yeah. Not if you were enlisted, but if you were drafted, because they had uh, a story that there were like three or four brothers of the same family killed at the same time. So mm-hmm. they said the drafted will wait until the other one come back to go. So anyway, I was sent back to Paris. I ended up at the Admiralty there doing uh, cooking for the brass. They were doing big dinner. And I had a friend of mine that I met who was from Lyon, as I was, and he was the chef to the, the secretary of uh, the treasury. So he said, I have special dinner to do. I have never been trained classically. Can you give me a hand? So I said, yeah, absolutely. So he arranged it. And then I cooked there, and the government changed at that point, and Félix Gaillard became the Secretary of Treasury. And I stayed with him doing special dinner, and the government changed again, and he became the Prime Minister. So they took me directly there, and I stayed with him actually six months and ten days before he was changed again. (laughs) And then after, the other one stayed like a month and a half, and the 12th of May, 58, the goal came to power. So I stayed with them until uh, basically I was released uh, at the end of 58 and I came here in 59. Yeah. But when you're cooking for the French head of state, especially at that time, and you're entertaining other heads of state or you're, or you're just cooking for you know, the French elite, obviously right. there was no aristocracy, but sort of the cultural aristocracy well, right, yeah. was, was, was alive in, in the blood of the veins of these people. Yes. You had to cook a cuisine that was that showed French cuisine to the utmost. Right. Right. Tell me about the food you were cooking. Well, it started with Eckhardy, which was uh, the vice president there. And uh, he, uh, he was a real uh, gourmet, or maybe I should say a glutton. Uh, in any case, uh, he called <laughs> and he, he said, Chef, too. could you bring me a cookbook? I said, I don't have a cookbook. I didn't have a cookbook at the time. He said, OK, get one. So I remember I bought the big book of Kurnonsky, which is very classic 19th century cooking too, uh, with those uh, dishes with whole truffle around too. Um, you know, everything was on platter, of course, nothing on plate at the time. And then he would take that book up and he'd say, I want this or I want that. And that, <laughs> that, that, that was, was his menu? That was about the <laughs> menu. So when we did. So, you know, I remember doing for him les œufs du Périgord, the Périgord eggs, which were bowl of foie gras. I would take a fresh foie gras. Uh, cut it to make a bowl, cut it up and put a, a dice of truffle in the center to imitate the pit of a fruit. And then you have that bowl of foie gras and chopped truffle, roll them in there, they were black, then glaze them with aspic. Uh-huh. And we did a, a basket with potato, long strip of potato. Uh, I built it on a, on a slab well, of you, potato. You, the whole basket was made of potato. Yeah, no, a slab of potato, then I put spaghetti, and then strip of potato all, all around to make a basket, then you fry that to do that, to put those eggs, those supposed egg du Péridor, those block of truffle, and, and, uh, <laughs> which he would eat like two or three with his foot standing up because he had the gout. <laughs> so, oh. he would eat so yes, it, <laughs> was a very, it was a type of uh, very, very classic food that you would not be able to do even at that point at that time because we had old truffle or stuff around that it, you wouldn't be able to sell in a restaurant, it would cost a fortune. But you know, when I served, 
I saw him like Eisenhower, Nehru, Tito, Macmillan, those were the head of state at the time. Usually those dinners will be organized by the protocol. So they will uh, talk to you and say, okay, the dinner has to be long with two meat, three meat, or it has to be short, it has to be done in an hour and a quarter, or this and that. Mm -hmm. And then in addition, like when uh, Eisenhower came, the French president ate already at uh, uh, the American embassy, and they had dinner at the Quai d'Orsay too, they already had salmon one, they already had this, that one. So they give you all of those indications uh, for you, so you can create a menu. And of course, there is, uh, there is uh, you know, you're not going to give uh, uh, a ham to the prime minister of, uh, of, of Israel or whatever. No, right. So, so you, there is a dietary consideration and all that. So they give you all that, that thing, then you supply a menu, then they pick one up, and that's it. But uh, the cook was really at the bottom of the social scale. And at that mm. time, you were in the kitchen. No one would ever call you for kudo in the dining room. That did not exist. Sure. You know, we tried to open the door to see uh, those famous people, but that was about it, which was different for Madame de Gaulle, for example, when I did the dinner for them. So on Monday, we did the dinner together. So there was a different head of state or whatever during the week, fine, small dinner, but on Sunday, uh, they were very, uh, very uh, devout uh, Catholic. So they went to church. Uh, so after church on Sunday, we had the dominical meal with the children, grandchildren and all that, eight, 10, 12 people. So at that point, it was really what they wanted to eat. So usually, you know, simple, a leg of lamb, roasted, not too rare, it's no good for the blood of the president, you know? and then a big <laughs> hick or a collin poached with a butter sauce, uh, you know, and an apple tart, a caramel custard, very classic too, fresh cheese from on the way. But uh, it was that type of meal. Uh, but I have to say that that particular Sunday meal, I had to do a special accounting that they pay from their own pocket. Mm -hmm. So that was uh, a question of ethic, I suppose, with the goal. And so you do it to admire this because it was basically a kind of drop of water in what we spent during the week. Yeah. But uh, that was the way it was. We also had other things, like I remember, I think it was Guy Mollet, who was the minister of um, a foreign minister, he went to Russia and came back with like three cans like this of two kilos of fresh beluga, you know, thing like this, <laughs> that we had in the kitchen. Or uh, there was uh, the, presidential, the presidential hunting ground in Rambouillet and so forth in the forest. So when guests would come and do that, then I would end up with 15, 20 pheasants or whatever they, they brought back for me, which I do pate, I do other type of thing with it too, you those type of thing. Yeah. Three two-kilo tins of beluga caviar. Yeah, beluga, yes. Beluga is, again, the law in caviar. America, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, an endangered species. So yeah. uh, we have the Ocetra, uh, the most expensive. And the Ocetra, this spring at, at Petrocian, they sent me the catalog. The best of the Ocetra was $13,000 a kilo. So, uh, <laughs> so, so at that time, the beluga, very nice lunch. the beluga was already very expensive. Or, or oyster, I ordered oyster for dinner. It was Prunier, you know, one of the best restaurants and uh, caterer in Paris, who came with the guy ready to open when they sit down, you know. So uh, uh, it was simple food in many ways, but the highest quality ingredient, or like the cheese, fromage d'Androuet, you know, Androuet, the very famous cheese maker in Paris. Every day they brought a tray of fresh cheese. The other one I gave to the employee or whatever. So. Uh, a very high, high quality, yeah. Yeah. So, fast forward again. You go from a life where you are making eggs out of foie gras and truffles. <laughs> yeah, right. And serving them to gentlemen with gout. Yeah. To a world where you're cooking for Howard Johnson's. Yeah, that was Why? different. <laughs> yeah, like what? And certainly you could have continued that path of haute cuisine forever. I did. I did. When I came here, I worked at the Pavillon. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. The Pavillon yeah. was really the best known restaurant uh, in America. I mean, French restaurant, that is. And, uh, but uh, we had trouble with... Uh, Soulet was the owner of the Pavillon, too, and Pierre Frenet was the executive chef. We all left in the spring of 1960. Um, and actually, at that time, uh, Kennedy was running for president, and I was offered a job at the White House. But at the same time, Pierre Frenet, had the, one of the clients of the Pavillon, was uh, um, Howard Johnson, Howard D. Johnson, the one mm -hmm. who created the company. The actual and person, he, Howard he, Johnson. He told, oh, yes. 
Yeah, that picture in my book, uh, The Apprentice, he came to my wedding, so, mm. yeah, with his wife. So anyway, Pierre, uh, he had asked Pierre to work with them, and Pierre wanted me to come with it. It was another world altogether, another world uh, that I didn't know anything about, that is to work in production, the chemistry of food. I had two chemists working with food. us, yeah. the mass market, American eating habit, all kind of different things that I uh, had no knowledge of. Uh, which I learned. I mean, I stayed there for 10 years, 1960, 1970, you know, so. What excited you about that? Especially at the time, when again, you could have continued the cuisine route. Right. What about this said, I want to learn here? It was, as I said, things that I didn't know about, different eating habits in this country, from the clam chowder to the clam strip to whatever we did there. It was another type of food. And also I remember when I came, to America, all the chefs that I knew in New York were Swiss, Italian, uh, French, uh, German, mm-hmm. all white guy. I didn't know one black American chef until I worked at Howard Johnson. Mm. Uh, Mr. Johnson said, Jacques want to work for us, he's got to work on the, in one of the restaurants. So I went on Rego Park, Queens Boulevard, there was a big Howard Johnson there. Yeah. I get into the kitchen, behind the stove, everyone was black, all the black kids working there. My first experience with American chef. So uh, they, they never heard probably of the gold, if that's only they didn't know the pavillon, it didn't make any difference. Yeah. Like in any kitchen, you have to, you know, to do your mark. So I end up uh, flipping burger too, and in a few weeks, as fast or faster than anyone else. I was well trained to. That was my first experience with, uh, with American chef and American cuisine. And then in the commissary, then I was transferred in the commissary in Queen's Village. So then it was, as I said, another world of cooking altogether in terms of production, in terms of uh, reading the food, visiting restaurants, creating new recipe. I'd never created recipe before, mm-hmm. you know. And so that was the beginning for me. And uh, when I left the pavilion, I opened a restaurant on Fifth Avenue called La Potagerie in New York, uh, which was a soup place I opened with some investor. And I did like 200 gallons of soup a day production. Then I opened the World Trade Center with Joe Baum. We could feed 30,000 people a day in the main commissary that I set up. And then I was a consultant at the Russian tea room in the 80s. I'm saying all of that to say I could never have done any of those without the training of Howard Johnson. Mm-hmm. That was important to me. Understanding how you yeah. make a lot of food at one time. Right, right. Make it well. Right. You said a really interesting thing. Actually, I believe it was in your, in your book, The Apprentice. Like you said, you've been a dean of a culinary school for 30 years. Right. And that you feel that is a failure possibly of the school and probably of our larger society that you're always asking yourselves internally, why are we not having and graduating more black students to become chefs? First price, you know, again, it amounts to money uh, most of the time. I mean, uh, we did not pay. Apprenticeship, a cooking school did not exist when I was a kid. You go behind the stove and you learn and we, we were not pay as apprentice for two years and we work like 10, 12 hours a day. You know, so that's one thing. And when I talk to young people, I say, you know, it's just as good if you know a chef, if you know a restaurant somewhere, if he wants to take you as an apprentice, it's certainly as good, maybe even better than going to a cooking school. It's different. Uh, and you will learn a great deal and he will have to pay you a little bit, even not much, but at least you don't have to pay. But uh, at the French Culinary Institute or at BU, uh, I have scholarship under my name. Uh, and I remember uh, the last time I was at BU there, I see a young black guy who had a scholarship under my name and was able to do that. So again, you know, we work now, I have a, I have a foundation, the Jacques Pepin Foundation, which my son-in-law is running and he, he teaches at Johnson & Well. We show the technique that I, I am known for and we give that to homeless people, to people coming out of jail, to veteran people, mm-hmm. people who really need that. And you know that it can change the life of someone. So, but no, it's coming. It's coming more and more. Yeah. And, and it should be, you know, so. Yeah. I mean, there's an incredible, painful irony, really, in, in the United States, right? Because for many, 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 many years, for centuries, almost everyone who did any kind of professional cooking was... Was black. Was, oh, yeah, was, sure. Professional cooking was black. Yeah, but you and see... And now, now we have our food culture where, where people are brought up as celebrities and yeah. chefs are treated as celebrities yeah. and people, you know, there's glamour and there's glory in it. Well, to tell you the truth, I had no inkling, no idea 
of the potential for publicity or whatever. Because mm. I had been with the president in France, I'd never been on a radio, on a television, barely existed. The cook was at the bottom of the social scale, yeah. and any good mother would have of her kid married a, a lawyer, or an accounting, or a doctor, <laughs> certainly not a cook. Now we are genius, I don't know what happened. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> the point is that, uh, uh, so it's a friend of mine, René Verdon, who was the sous chef at the Essex House uh, in New York, who took the job. It was the first time Mrs. Kennedy took a picture with, the, with him, so it was the beginning of the chef starting to explode. But if you ask anyone who was the chef before, I happen to know it was a black woman from the South. Mm -hmm. No one would have known her no more than they knew me at the time. The kitchen was, you know, forbidden territory. No one came there. Mm -hmm. But it's changing now. Yeah. Well, in terms of the culture changing, in terms of you, and you just said, like, I don't know how it happened, but suddenly chefs became geniuses. Oh, yeah. I, I, you know, I dare say you had a lot to do with that. You, no, not really. Well, no, so. I mean, <laughs> no. Well, in no. terms of... And there is no genius in the kitchen. We're still mashed potato makers. <laughs> That's what we are. So, I mean, you know, can't take it too seriously. <laughs> well, like you said, there's a certain genius in making truly wonderful mashed potatoes. Yeah, but, that's true. Okay, but but that. what I mean by that is you were someone who brought so many of these techniques, but also the philosophy behind the techniques, brought yeah. them to a bigger audience, a massive audience through your books, through your television shows, through your partnerships and collaborations and your friendships with people like Julia Child, and you know, and made that world accessible and exciting to American pop culture. So I'm curious, as someone who lived and trained in the world before that, and then who was yeah. instrumental in that moment, although you're being humble and sort of... I'm not <laughs> Yeah, you know, who lived in that moment and, and helped turn our culture. Now when you look, in 2018, you look around you. What do you think of the incredible heat, the incredible focus that our culture places on cooking and chefs? Yeah, it, it's just plan amazing, you know. I mean, it started with Women Liberation, Organic Gardening, the early 60s. And I say again, when the... Uh, Mrs. Kennedy took picture with René Verdon too. It started there and people going to Europe. It was the time after the war. Uh, so people started going to Europe, experiencing Europe. A lot of GI coming back wanted to go back in vacation to experience some of uh, the place they had been before. So all of that, the traveling and all, the interest in wine. But then the wine started exploding in California. After the wine, the bread, you know, starting eventually now the cheese, all of that didn't exist, you know, all mm -hmm. of those industry. Cooking school in the 70s, all the cookware shop uh, had a little cooking school in the back of it too. Mm -hmm. And at that time, when I kind of left the restaurant business, 1974, I had a very bad car accident, so I was kind of uh, immobilized for a while. But I started going class in those little cooking school. I ended up traveling 30, 35 weeks out of the year from one school to another, from Sacramento to San Francisco to the West Coast. I would stay there and cook for a week and all that. So people taking classes like crazy, you know, at the time. And I have to say at the time, probably out of 30 people in the class, it was 29 women, maybe one guy. I do a class now, I maybe 20 guys and 10 women. Mm -hmm. You know, it has changed. I mean, the focus of that too. And the home cooking has changed in the sun that uh, the men have kind of uh, invaded, if you want, the, the, the territory of the woman, which were the kitchen. So there has been that type of crisscrossing. I yeah. mean, interesting. And that started in the early 60s. So likewise with the restaurant, 24,000 restaurants in New York kind of blow your mind. And uh, <laughs> after 70 years in the kitchen, I go to a restaurant. Sometimes I feel that I don't know anything about cooking anymore. I don't. I mean, you know, from... Uh, You'll go to Peruvian cooking, to some type of cooking from uh, South Africa or whatever, and uh, it's amazing, you know, what you can, uh, what you can find in New York. Probably, maybe the most exciting place in food in in the world now. So, yeah. well, I know that when you were a student, you were almost you were almost about to write your PhD dissertation on oh, food and culture, oh, yeah, and then right. it was rejected because at yeah. the time they said food was not worth studying, and yeah. I think we have demonstrated. Yeah. That food and society and culture are yeah, maybe but, the only thing worth yeah. studying. <laughs> right. I have to say that uh, Colombia gave me a doctorate last year. Finally! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you didn't have to write the dissertation. 
that's Jacques Pepin. And stick around because next he and I will make a little something in the kitchen. And later on, Bridget Lancaster from America's Test Kitchen tells us how Jacques' book La Technique changed her life. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM, American Public Media. Our show is supported by Ben & Jerry's. Ben & Jerry's newest non-dairy frozen desserts are made with sunflower butter. It's a new twist on vegan euphoria. Look, everyone deserves a little ice cream, especially now, and even people who avoid cream. For years, Ben & Jerry's has been making non-dairy frozen desserts based on almond milk, but their three newest non-dairy flavors, milk and cookies, mint chocolate cookie, and creme brulee cookie, are all made with sunflower butter. It's based on seeds, not nuts or soy, and it's really, really impressive how they nailed the mouthfeel. It's creamy, but doesn't have that weird greasiness, you know, you get from other non-dairy ice creams. You add to that all the chunks and swirls you'll love from Ben & Jerry's, like salted caramel and brown sugar cookies, and this gets serious. Check out the Ben & Jerry's Sunflower Butter lineup and the whole non-dairy family at benjerry.com. That's B-E-N-J-E-R-R-Y dot com. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table, the show for curious cooks and eaters. We've been spending the whole hour with the one and only Jacques Pepin. And in this last part of our interview, we get cooking. He gives us a private lesson on this incredible technique for instant gravlocks and a super simple salmon tartare. So I'll do an instant gravlocks. If I have guests at home, I may have five, six plates ready. And on each plate, I put the salt. And as you can see here, I am putting kosher type salt because the crystals are thicker, it punctures the meat more. And to cure the meat, I mean, the idea of curing the meat is to uh, uh, draw out the moisture to deprive, you know, the bacteria of a necessary living condition. So mm-hmm. this is the curing process that you do, whether you smoke the salmon or not. So you salted the plate and that's put it. pepper on the plate. Yeah, that's you it. You sliced the salmon into yeah. you know, quarter-inch thick slices, and you laid yeah. it on top of the salt, and now you're yeah. salting the top of the salmon. Not quite even a quarter of an inch. You put it on top of it here, and the time that it takes for that salt to melt, which is probably about 10-12 uh, minutes, then you have, you have a gravelax. So here I would put a piece of plastic wrap, mm-hmm. put another plate on top. When you finish, keep that in the refrigerator when you're ready to use it. What do I put on top? All kind of different garnish, which I'm going to do in a minute. Meanwhile, maybe with this, we'll do, we'll do a tartare. The rest yes, of the filet that you and, and uh, tartare really makes a big difference if you cut your fish rather. You, don't, you cannot put that in the food processor. Yeah, I mean, it's you, a paste. You, you, you could, but you would have to stop, start, stop, start. To it get pasty very fast. Yeah, so now that, you're just dicing the raw salmon. Yes. The small dice. Okay, so here I will have a tartare. There is one, th- one thing that you don't put now in there. You don't put lemon juice, citric acid or acetic acid, any of that is going to kind of eat the protein. It become all white, like if someone ate it already. <laughs> so you don't, uh, you don't put it in there. You put it when you serve it at the table. Okay. You know, otherwise. Otherwise you're making ceviche. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Just some salt and pepper with the yeah, diced salmon in a bowl. Yeah. So, maybe a dash of Tabasco. Uh, we had a little bit of olive oil. Okay. There. Maybe, uh, maybe a little bit of a... Boy, that knife needs help. Oh, yeah, that's... A little bit of red onion. A little bit of red onion or... Okay. What do you think? You want a bit of chive in there? Sure. I just want to hear the sound it makes when you cut onions and chives. Yes. And it'd be very simple. Listen to that. Very great. simple. 
like this, you know. Could you give me a spoon in there? There is a we spoon in those things. Thank you. Oh, those chives smell good. And that's probably, probably heat, what do you think? Just plain. More salt, more pepper. I think you're good on salt. Okay. You're good on pepper. Okay. Beautiful on the onion, the chive. All right, so maybe something fresh, like if you want to do the let's see what we're going to do like with that. that. Yeah, those cucumber are from my garden. Really? <laughs> okay. So here, what I would do with that, if I prepare it ahead, I probably would put a dash of salt on it on the cucumber. Uh, yeah, I probably would put maybe a dash of sugar there on top and a dash of vinegar. Mm. This is my own vinegar I made, and this is the poorer of the vinegar. You cut, you cut your uh, thing like this, you know, I so love that. that. He keeps his vinegar in a wine bottle yeah. with the cork, just two notches in the cork, and then you can use that as your Okay, pour. so let's see this here. Uh, You're latticing the cucumber ribbons. Yeah, I mean, plate. aesthetically, it's nice. But it's not that important. For me, it's only the taste which is important. But if it happened to work together, why not? Why not? Yeah. Why not make it beautiful like a master French chef? Yeah. Right. If I had a little bit of salmon caviar, it would be nice. Yeah. Top, right? <laughs> Maybe some capers. Um, I have some basil here. So just a little scoop of the salmon tartare in the middle of your cucumber ribbons, some yeah. olive oil all around it, some capers, a few sprigs of basil. Yeah. Beautiful. This is $22 <laughs> at Daniel. <laughs> okay. So the gravlax is curing on the plate with the salt. Yeah. You're going to serve it directly on that plate. Oh, yeah, of course. Oh, so this is amazing. Okay, so now so, you're so you know when, when you have, as I said, uh, a, a dozen, uh, a dozen uh, plates like that you do, when you have one, you start garnishing whatever uh, you want. Around. Maybe a little piece of uh, onion this way. Just keep cutting onions, Jacques. Yeah. I can listen to you cut onions all day long. I don't say that to most people. Oh, boy. Okay. Okay, so now you have your radish slivers on the plate. You've sprinkled some capers. Here are some of those onions. More chives that you can, you can cut. Maybe chive or parsley or whatever. <laughs> Maybe I'll cut them into larger pieces like this. Little one-inch batons of chives. Well, I may put a piece of the, the surface of the skin here. Without the, yeah, the lemon, lemon zest. Very thinly sliced. Just taking a little strip with a peeler and then slicing the super thin julienne. I mean, really, what I think what you're thinking about when you're looking at this plate is you have the instant cured gravlax and just kind of anything that's fresh, salty, crunchy, aromatic. Like that. Beautiful. And that's ready to serve? That's ready to serve as soon as we get the toast. So here is what Escoffier oh, did. You clean that up. You don't even have to trim it, but it makes it a bit easier. And then you go from the corner to separate your toast. This is what Melba wanted a toast, very, very thin. You cannot do a toast that thin because it will burn and curl up. This is the original to toast Melba that he did. That sound you hear or don't hear is my jaw dropping to the floor because Jacques just took the slice of toast, cut off the crust, and then cut the slice of toast in half horizontally so you only get the crunchy part. You just go in through the corner and you just filleted the toast like a fish and it, you only have the yeah, crunchy part. Yeah, if you were to cut a, a toast that thin and try to brown it, it would curl up so it doesn't work. But there it worked. The real toast melba. So here, you want to do that one? I want to, I want to try to slice the toast melba. Yeah. I'm a little slower at this than your first, here. Your oh first toast Oh my God, melba. look, it's so thin. All right. You can put butter in it and eat it. Yeah. We, we chef. And then taste. 
So with that, we need a glass of wine. Cool. Merci. To you. This is incredible. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That was Jacques Pepin, and it was really such an honor to get to spend the afternoon in his home. His latest book is called Menus. It's a collection of his hand-painted blank menus for you to keep track of your special dinners. And if you want to get more detail on his instant-cured salmon technique or see a little video of our time in his kitchen, check it out at SplendidTable.org. You know, before we left Jacques' home, I had a little fanboy moment, and I asked him to sign my copy of his book, La Technique. And it was hilarious because he goes, oh, people used to bring me this to sign and say, I love this book. And then they started to say, my mother loved this book. And then they started to say, my grandmother loved this book. And there he is, still signing it. But I am not the only non-grandparent fan of it. Bridget Lancaster from America's Test Kitchen talked with Sally Swift about her love of it, too. Hey, Bridget, great to have you with us. Hi, Sally. You know, we have spent this entire hour talking to Jacques Pepin, which was just a delight for us. And, you know, he has been a model for so many culinary careers. I am kind of wondering, was he one for you? He was definitely a model for me. He was, you know, back in the 80s, I was watching a lot of public broadcasting cooking shows because they were the only cooking shows on the air, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, you had Julia Child, who I worshipped. We had Martin Yan and Justin Wilson. But uh, I remember Jacques Pepin came on. There was a show called Everyday Cooking. And there was this French guy all of a sudden on my television who was telling me not to necessarily follow a recipe, but learn how to cook. And those are two very different things. Yes, they Uh, are. Following a recipe, you really are just, uh, you're following orders. And you do have to, you know, following a recipe takes some skill, definitely. Don't get me wrong. But once you learn about the ingredients and the food and you know why things are happening, that's when you become not just a recipe follower. You become a cook. And that stuck with me, especially because I did not have any formal culinary school background. All of a sudden, I felt like I had this little peek into what they were teaching chefs. You know, know the food, read the food, adjust the recipes based on whether a pear is ripe or not, mm-hmm. things like that. Th- mm-hmm. That's the magic that he really provided. Mm-hmm. And his book, La Technique, which I think was a game changer for many, many people. Um, can you explain why that book is so different? Uh, La Technique was unlike any other book, cookbook, that was really put out there for the masses. Um, it was a uh, you know, it wasn't a cookbook. Right. So La Technique, which came out in the 70s, um, it was so important to a lot of cooks, a lot of chefs um, as well. But I was just a cook at that point. I was sort of going into my culinary deg- uh, culinary career, I should say. I didn't have a, gr- a degree, and I didn't have the means to get one. Um, I was a big collector of cookbooks, um, magazines, anything. And I found a copy of La Technique at a yard sale. And I really didn't know what I was looking at. I opened it up, and it wasn't just full of these recipes that told me how to cook a recipe, specific recipe, and, you know, serve and go on with your life. This was really a game changer because it was the first time I had seen a book with pictures, step-by-step pictures, huh. that is, was going to show me, instead of just saying, carve a chicken. Right. Well, there it was, step by step. I could see what was going on. And this predated, for me, this predated my um, introduction to Cook's Illustrated. This was my culinary school, mm-hmm. really. It was, I glommed onto this book. I started practicing his techniques. I will never be as good as him when it comes to those knife skills, though. <laughs> Have you ever Googled Jacques Pippin knife skills? No. All right. Well, just plan to lose a weekend <laughs> if you're going to do that. So, uh, especially the lemon pig. <laughs> okay, we will all, everyone's <laughs> going to be Googling this this weekend. So, yes. so are there specific things you learn from specific recipes of his? Definitely. Um, the thing about Jacques Pepin for me as well is 
um, French cuisine up to that point for me was something that you would go to a fine, fancy restaurant, mm-hmm. um, save all your pennies, and um, you know feel uncomfortable, and you get tiny amounts of food. Um, Jacques Rabanne taught me that his favorite types of French cuisine were a lot of them were based on what his mother taught him. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were French comfort foods, and I think probably that's why one of my favorite recipes from him was a creme caramel, and that was a family-sized. Of course, I, I say family-sized. I can still eat the whole thing myself. <laughs> um, but it's a, it was basically what I loved about this recipe were his little notes that he wrote in the recipe, helping the cook along the way, um, little hints, little little cues, visual cues, or if this happens, do this. So even though it was a recipe, he was still trying to teach me at the Mm -hmm. time, because I was Mm -hmm. reading it, um, to learn the food, not the recipe. Um, Things, you know, you think about a creme caramel. What do you have to do there? You have to learn how to make caramel. So Mm -hmm. that's scary for a lot of people. Um, You have to learn how to make a custard. I remember this, uh, the family-style custard. I still make it. Uh, There was a a note in there telling me the difference between telling me. See, I'm a little obsessed Yeah, I love that. Well, that's what he, that's what that, that's what he did. That's what he does. (laughs) Uh, That described uh, the temperature that you were looking for if you you were cooking the custard to, he said, to bring it towards 180 uh, for a creme caramel. If it went over 180, you now have a creme brulee. So Mm -hmm. it was just in that instance, in my mind, I'd had creme caramel. I've had creme brulee. I know that the creme brulee is denser. So it was a temperature thing, and mm-hmm. that was a learning point for me. Um, I could watch him make a souffle right. of any kind. Chocolate. I love this cheese souffle. Mm-hmm. It has uh, spinach, ham, and gruyere. Again, it was all about these simple techniques. You have spinach. Spinach is full of water. So a lot of people would just throw spinach into a souffle or even scrambled eggs or anything like that. And he's telling me, me again, to cook th- the spinach, and then drain it so I can get rid of the excess water before I add it to um, the actual dish. Mm -hmm. So he provides the reader, the cook, with all these steps of success that are built into the recipe. And I think that's why he is just such a prized chef even today. For not only restaurant chefs, but for home cooks. Yep. What a wonderful teacher he has been. There is no doubt about it. amazing teacher. Lovely to talk to you, Bridget. You too. Thanks. Bridget Lancaster is co-host of America's Test Kitchen and Cook's Country. And as an homage to Jacques Pepin, Bridget left us with one of the recipes inspired by him. Find a classic cheese souffle at SplendidTable.org. And that is our show for the week. I really, really hope you enjoyed spending time with us while we spent time with Jacques. And until next week, eat well, drink well, and tip well. Be sure to go to SplendidTable.org to get information on anything you ever hear here. Look around our recipe collection, register for our weekly email newsletter, Weeknight Kitchen, and subscribe to our podcast. Our production team includes senior producer Jennifer Russell, Jenny Lubke is our editor and technical director, Erica Romero is our associate producer, Chip Walton is our digital producer, and Sally Swift is our managing producer. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM, American Public Media. Our show is supported by Capital One. Capital One knows life doesn't alert you about your credit card. That's why they created Eno, the Capital One assistant that catches things that might look wrong with your credit card, like over-tipping, duplicate charges, or potential fraud. They send an alert to your phone and help you fix it. It's another way Capital One is watching out for your money even when you are not. Capital One, what's in your wallet? See CapitalOne.com for details.